I want to start just by talking about some of the ethical conundrums that the media has had to deal with reporting on the Hamish Walker saga. And the first one, of course, that people mentioned, and it's the first one that comes to mind, uh, is that they didn't actually report any of the details of these COVID-19 patients that were leaked to them by Hamish Walker. And so they got a lot of credit for this. And, you know, the people said, of course, they acted far more ethically than Hamish Walker himself. And that's absolutely true. But I spoke to a couple of political reporters today and they actually said that was probably the easiest decision that they had to make during this whole thing. There wasn't really a lot of news value. There definitely wasn't any public interest value in the identities of these people that were leaked to them. Their basic details are already actually mentioned by the Ministry of Health. Now, they said that the actual biggest ethical conundrum quandary that they had to deal with was actually something else and it is touched on in this clip that we're about to play which is RNZ political reporter Joe Moyer uh, talking to Kim Hill on Morning Report. So when that interview that RNZ did with Hamish Walker took place it was around those statements around the statements about the country of origin that people were coming from. Now at the time a commitment was made to Hamish Walker that information he was going to pass on to RNZ would not be connected to him. It would be anonymous that we would be able to go to Megan Woods and talk about this information and that we wouldn't connect him with it. Now that commitment was made before RNZ saw what was sent. Obviously we didn't anticipate being sent such a serious privacy breach. So that was Joe Moyer talking about actually how this saga came about. And the problem that the media faced was that they essentially, all of the media that reported this, they agreed to this condition of anonymity with Hamish Walker in advance of actually being sent the details of these COVID-19 patients. So they obviously, and this has been said to me by several people, they didn't expect to have this kind of uh, a very world-shattering, deeply concerning leak. They just expected it to be some reasonable data that they would then take to the housing minister, Megan Woods. And so they're in, all of a sudden in, in, in receipt of this incredibly important information. But they have two competing standards, I guess. The first is the top journalistic principle. You know it. You have to protect the source. And you're told in journalism school, you know, you'd go to jail to protect the source. It's your number one thing, and particularly in the political gallery, where they have so many anonymous sources telling them things. They want to protect the source. But the the person, one of the people that I spoke to, said they were kind of actually, uh, I guess, deeply uh, conflicted and actually kind of troubled by the fact that they knew that an MP had this information that they're not supposed to have and was passing it on, and that information is in the public interest. It's obviously of deep concern to the government and would actually be very beneficial to the investigation and could actually potentially, I guess, be quite beneficial to New Zealand's health response. But in order to protect a source, they didn't want to pass it on. And so they've got those two things acting in conflict to each other, that this person that I spoke to said, actually, they never really considered uh, divulging their source. That's sort of a, that's the ultimate journalistic no-no. But what they did do is they really clearly and urgently and speedily reported the fact that this leak had happened so that it of would be properly <laughs> investigated and that, and, and that maybe the leaker could somehow be found. So they didn't actually tell the identity of their source, but they tried to speed that process along. Did, did it ever come up about medical records? Uh, do you mean... In like, terms of the, uh, 
the, the fact that you're putting somebody's medical records out in the public arena. Now, the account... There was one actually written today by Amelia Wade of the Herald who did uh, an actual kind of a, a timeline of events. And the way that she made it sound in this, in this story that was published on the Herald, it, 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 was almost, it almost seemed casual, uh, the way that Hamish, Hamish Walker actually did this. And he, he was essentially incensed about Megan Woods calling him racist, and he said, well, I've got information that can prove that I'm not racist, and I'll give it to you. He hands him off this incredibly sensitive document that he didn't seem to, by the, on the face of it, or by the reading of it, didn't seem to realise was quite as inflammatory as it was. And, and Obviously so, not. Yeah, they hadn't, it didn't seem like he'd fully grappled with the magnitude of what he was doing, and it seemed like actually reporters at first... <laughs> At, at least it seems like Amelia Wade realised the magnitude of what was happening, but it didn't seem like everyone necessarily understood the magnitude of what had taken place until it unravelled over the weekend. So actually, that, this links to my second ethical conundrum that they actually faced, which is that Hamish Walker originally uh, gave them this data to prove that he wasn't racist. Because you'll remember last week, this all started over him releasing a press release saying, oh no, some people are going to come to Queenstown from Pakistan, India and Korea. And people called him racist and so he released this data to prove that actually these people were coming from those countries and he was just reporting the facts. Uh, Now... New Zealanders were returning (laughs) home. Yes, yes. Now... uh, I'll I'll play another clip from Joe Moyer, and this touches on something that happened here, because actually when Hamish Walker arrived at his statement uh, explaining that he was the leak, he didn't actually say that was the reason he gave that data. He gave a completely different reason. So this is Joe Moyer talking to Kim Hill again. Basically, we've got this situation where he's now put out a press statement saying that the reason that he um, passed on that information to media was that he wanted to expose the government's shortcomings so that they would be rectified. He said the information received was not password protected, it was not stored on a secure system where authorised people needed to log on, and there was no redaction to protect patient details. Now, that is very different to the conversation that RNZ had with him and how we came to have the information, which was basically him trying to explain the origin of these people that were going to potentially come down to his electorate. Now, so <laughs> Hamish Walker, when he put out a statement saying that he was a leaker, he kind of put this quite noble uh, spin on things where he said he was just trying to expose Labour's privacy failings. He was doing the world a service. Journalists, of course, had uh, had these conversations with him where they knew that actually he was trying to disprove that he is a racist. And so... The ones that I spoke to today, they, they, there's, they weren't as conflicted about this because Hamish Walker had already outed himself publicly as the leaker. But actually, to say that what his true intention was, uh, they had to sort of break that anonymity deal again and, and say, because he'd, he'd told them this racist stuff off the record, they had to break that and say, actually, this is the full context. But the, the person that I spoke to said that they felt they had an obligation to expose Hamish Walker's... Uh, misinformation, call it a lie if you want, that they, that his original intention was just to uh, expose Labour's privacy failings. So you have a, you have a situation here where, where a source is saying something publicly on the record that they, that's contradicted 
uh, by what they've told you anonymously off the record. And actually, I just thought it was interesting because a similar situation to this arose in the US recently, and it was something that the New York Times reported on, and it was about uh, the judge... Brett Kavanaugh, when he was being confirmed to the Supreme Court, he wrote a very huffy letter saying that he was not one of Bob Woodward of Watergate fame, his sources for a book that he'd written in 1999. And Bob Woodward almost... Uh, Bob Woodward saw this a betrayal, as a betrayal of trust because he knew that, of course, Brett Kavanaugh had been one of his sources. And Brett Kavanaugh was lying uh, uh, on the record about something that had actually happened off the record. And Bob Woodward drafted a full story. Uh, he was going to expose Brett Kavanaugh. It was during his Supreme Court hearing. And then that was nixed at the last minute by Marty Barron, the editor, Bob Woodward's editor at the Washington Post. This was all. This all recently came out in a column in the New York Times. So I, I see a little bit of a parallel there. And, and I guess the question is, do journalists, when they see a source that contradicting what they've told them anonymously on the record, do they then have... Does that mean that the deal is then off and that then they can they can out their source publicly for lying? I think that that is probably a reasonable assumption and that's something that's been backed by journalists. But I think there are others that just like Marty Baron that have a more absolutist uh, approach to the, these anonymity deals, this idea of protecting a source. But I, I guess the downside to that is that sometimes you can end up participating in a lie, participating in a, in a, in a spin campaign. RNZ in the gun. Yeah. So speaking of, I guess, ethical concerns in the media, RNZ itself is in a little bit of trouble because I, I, this was mentioned earlier on the program, but Michelle Bogue, uh, regular appearer, uh, uh, panellist on the panel. Probably in the seat you're sitting in right now, Hamish. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. She would have she would have graced this seat itself. Uh, <laughs> she... If you've if you've been living under rock, she she actually outed herself at the same time as Hamish Walker as Hamish Walker's source, and so RNZ has been receiving a lot of criticism because it's had this obviously partisan and quite obviously Machiavellian or at least a very uselessly Machiavellian uh, political operator on uh, on as a regular contributor. And uh, it actually appears, as it so happens, Michelle Bogue was actually on the panel on the day all this news arose, and she may even have been drafting her email admitting to being behind the leak uh, while she was on the radio. So uh, you heard earlier her typing away while she was on the panel, but this is her co-panelist from Tuesday, Shane Tapo, and he was on Newstalk ZB an hour later, and, this is, and that was when Bogue's confession came through. So this is what he had to say then. You know, you don't put your party in in uh, an embarrassing situation when you're actually trying to embarrass the government. Oh, dear God, so it just got a whole lot worse. Up. Shane, we have just yeah. had a press statement come through from Michelle mm-hmm. Bogue. Michelle Bogue yeah. is just admitting oh, this, that... This will definitely get worse. Yes, as acting on. CEO of the Auckland Rescue Helicopter Trust, she leaked it to Hamish Walker. No wonder, no wonder Michelle was busy... Busy typing when I was on a radio show earlier with her. She was, she, she, yeah, she looked, she looked a little bit flustered. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is, this is not even RNZ's first. A controversy over a conflict of interest allegation regarding one of its commentators in the last, you know, month or two. We recently had Matthew Hooten, who was a regular contributor to Nine to Noon and also other shows. He uh, was 
strongly criticised because in the lead-up to Todd Muller's leadership coup, you might remember this, he gave several interviews, including on RNZ's Morning Report, and he wrote columns uh, advocating for Todd Muller to be the next national leader, and it later emerged that he had an understanding as of Wednesday of the week that Todd Muller became leader, uh, that he would be on Muller's team when he became leader. And he continued to do media interviews, including on Morning Report on the Friday. So, I mean, that, that, that was obviously a big conflict of interest allegation. It was something that people mentioned. Uh, uh, but Bogue now as, as well, the, the right-wing commentators are dropping like fires. This is what... Uh, there aren't the, that many of them. No, there's not that many. Only Ben Thomas left, really. And this is what the panel's host, Wallace Chapman, had to say about Michelle Bogue. Just to let you know, listeners, that Michelle Bogue will not be appearing on the panel anytime soon that I can tell you this afternoon. That's the end of Michelle Bogue on the panel for the foreseeable future, just FYI. And, of course, you know, Todd Muller today, he said that Hamish Walker had paid the ultimate price for his errors of judgment. Now, we know that Michelle Bogue isn't quite on that level, but she's obviously going to be ruining the day that she sent that rogue email every month that passes where there's not a call from the panel's producers. I'm here with Hayden Donnell. Sorry, I got you mixed up with Hamish Walker there. No, <laughs> absolutely understandable confusion. No, no, no confusion. Uh, I'm here with Hayden Donnell. We're do, uh, talking midweek media watch and stuff stops posting stuff on Facebook. Yeah, so on Monday, this is a big announcement by our biggest news provider and stuff actually said that it's no longer going to be publishing any of its stories to its 953,000 strong crowd of followers on Facebook. And on the face of it, that seems like a big risk. News sites get up to 60% of their traffic from Facebook. But for stuff, actually, and this is interesting, it's not that big of a risk. All, a lot of stuff's traffic has always come from Google and from SEO. So they get a, a heap from Google, and they also get a huge amount of just direct visits, people typing stuff.co.nz into their browser. And they're actually the fifth biggest site in New Zealand already. So they have this huge base. So I guess it's not as big a risk as it would be for someone like the spin-off, which actually maybe gets a huge percentage of its traffic from Facebook. And this decision, according to the the sites, the sites of the company's new owner, Sinead Boucher, this is all based on principle. She's actually taken a really strong advocate, uh, a strong, strongly uh, aggressive, I guess, what's the word? She's against Facebook over a long period of time. So this is something that she had to say about Facebook to MediaWatch itself in April. You know, we as a as a news entity and as a journalism company stand in opposite to Facebook in a lot of ways. And I think those ways, you know, it's good for us to keep them at arm's length in some ways because the type of work we produce, the code of ethics that we adhere to, you know, the fact that we're producing journalism that's fair, is accurate and balanced, is at odds to the fact that Facebook is, you know, permitted uh, massacres to be live streamed, uh, or data to be, as people's personal data to be used and misused to um, manipulate elections or you know, do all sorts of things for fake news to be spread. Now, just to explain why Facebook actually ends up uh, committing these journalistic crimes that Sinead is talking about, it's not because they're maliciously evil per se, they're more passively evil. They just promote engaging content. They see themselves as sort of like content agnostic, and so they end up promoting engaging content and actually 
what that means is hate is engaging, conspiracy theories are engaging, political echo chambers are extremely engaging, and they end up amplifying all these problems. So Stuff says it made its decision out of principle. And we, we reported this, and we got people saying, oh, Stuff has prim- principles, you know? <laughs> we, we, got, we get this a lot, and I just want to defend Stuff a little bit, because that's not really fair. That's not the direction that the company has been going in recently. I think of Stuff initiatives like the Alison Moore's uh, Me Too NZ uh, campaign. They've got a dedicated climate change section called the Forever Project. They have the Stuff Circuit team. They have many of the best reporters in the country, and they have just brought on the investigative reporter Kirsty Johnston. Do they have a comment moderator yet? <laughs> they've, they've probably they they apparently share that role between everyone. So I mean, I, I mean, they're not perfect. Steve Ellis, for instance, is probably the most embarrassing columnist in the country. He's on Stuff, but. I mean, this is the thing. They're actually a pretty good site, and this is a new direction under Sinead. And I think this Facebook move hints at it as well. You know, they are trying to go all in on, well, not all in, but at least somewhat in on being credible public interest journalism and trying to pick up money from being trustworthy and actually getting this kind of, this this dollar from being a quality news source. And it's not so much... Uh, what it shaped, what it's got a reputation for in the early 2010s, which is for a bit of clickbait. That's not really what stuff is anymore. And they actually see economic benefits in that. The editor, Patrick Crudson, was on Jesse Mulligan's show today. He said that advertisers are increasingly looking, they're increasingly looking for trustworthy news sources and uh, siding with them. So this might be actually a, a sign of things to come.